You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And then he, Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we began, uh, we began our series in the Gospel of Mark with a really important question, and it is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is the historic Jesus of the Bible? And after really only a few chapters, we are being confronted with the reality of who Jesus is, that he is the king that heals and delivers and conquers evil and forgives us of our sin and welcomes us into his family. Jesus ministers and speaks in a way that truly reveals that he is, in fact, the divine son of God. But it's important to note that we're approaching a moment in the narrative where we we sort of face another question that that we need to wrestle through together. And the question is, how are we going to respond? This is who Jesus is. How are we going to respond to him? You see, as we're moving through this narrative... Uh, the tension in the story is really growing. The life and the claims of Jesus are beginning to press and move people. We see this happening in the story. In fact, some people are even having these sort of visceral reactions to Jesus. Already, we've seen that the Pharisees have already made up their minds. They've already made up their minds about how they're going to respond to this Jesus and his claims. We've previously read that they have begun to conspire with the Herodians about, uh, to, to destroy Jesus. The family of Jesus is growing, um, well, quite uncomfortable. Uh, As we speak, they're now on their way to capture Jesus and to bring him home because they fear that he's lost his mind. The scribes are beginning to form their theories in order to explain all of this sort of strange and otherworldly activity that they're seeing in the life and ministry of Jesus. And then... There's this group of lost and broken people that seems to sort of 
reappear in the story in different cities and in different contexts. Lost and broken people that are coming to Jesus to find healing and forgiveness. Those who by faith are responding to his claims and responding to his call to follow him. And so again, the question for us, the question that we need to face is how are we going to respond? How are you going to respond to this Jesus? If there's one thing that's clear so far, it's that we can't be indifferent. We see various ways, we see multiple ways really to respond to Jesus, but at the end of the day, the only option that we don't have is indecision. Not if we're listening. Not if we're paying attention. Because if we're listening, we realize that Jesus is making some giant claims here. And he really is refusing to allow us to simply think that he is okay. Jesus is anything but just, yeah. Jesus, okay. C.S. Lewis always says it best. It's an inside joke now. He says this, I, uh, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. We must make, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. And God. But let, let us not come with any patronizing uh, nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So what we see here in Mark is that there are really three approaches that we can take in response to Jesus. And we need to weigh these options. You, I'm giving you all the options here, okay? Jesus is one either deranged and he's absolutely out of his mind. Weigh that. Consider that. I mean, and the scriptures are laying that out for us to, to consider. Jesus is either deranged, he's out of his mind, and therefore he needs to be shut up. Or he's demonic. In which case, he really needs to be stopped and he needs to be destroyed. Or, he's the divine son of God. In which case, he should be worshipped and followed, and you ought to get him your, give him your life. These are really the, the, the three options that we face when Jesus says the kind of things that he says, and when he does the kind of things that he does. And so here in Mark, these are really the three responses that represent the three groups in our passage. If you notice, there are three groups, and we're going to look at those groups in order. The first group we see in verses 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, this is a very brief description, but it, it requires that we give just a little bit of pause to acknowledge this. This is Jesus' family. The very people that we would expect to have understood who Jesus is and to understand how important his mission is, if there was any group that we would assume were insiders in this whole equation, it would be them. 
Yet these are the ones that are literally saying Jesus is out of his mind. He's lost it. Now maybe it was out of a desire to protect Jesus from the consequences. Maybe they knew where this road is going to lead. If you continue to say things like this, you're going to die, Jesus. Maybe they're, you know, honorable. They're trying to stop that from happening. We remember when Peter tried to do that, Jesus said what? Get behind me, Satan. Honorable, but not worthy of Christ. Or perhaps this is an attempt to protect their family family reputation. I can only imagine being in the place of Mary. Mary's thinking to herself, we already had a really tough start with this whole teenage pregnancy thing, okay? Right? And everyone in town is still talking about like the immaculate conception, right, Joseph? So they've already had a tough start as a family, and now, you know, they're trying to salvage what they've got. We don't know why. But what we do know is that this is not a friendly visit. They are here to seize Jesus. Or if you're reading from the NIV translation, to take charge of him. This word means to lay a hold of someone or something in order to bring that someone or something into one's own power. In in other words, to impose your will on someone. They're attempting to impose their will on Jesus. Now remember, we are talking about ways to respond and to relate to Jesus. And so what this scene uh, should do with with, with Jesus' family, those who are familiar with him, it should cause us to consider the ways that we have done the same. Those of us who just simply assume we're insiders. We're, We're family with Jesus. We're tight with Jesus. See, there are things that Jesus says and ways that Jesus calls us to live that at times, if we're going to be honest, cause us to think to ourselves, that's crazy. Like, that's, that's nuts. There are, there are times where, just like the family of Jesus, we determine that Jesus is not behaving the way we think he should. He's just not behaving the way we think he should. Now, we wouldn't be as bold, or at least, at least we'll give you the benefit of the doubt, we wouldn't be so bold to call Jesus a lunatic but we often decide for ourselves that our way is better. We often decide for ourselves that our way is superior. We, we may not go as far as to say that Jesus is out of his, out of his mind, but we, we definitely succumb to the pride that we know better than Jesus. If we're to be honest, and we're in church, so we better be honest, we often want the kind of Jesus that we can control. We often want the kind of Jesus that we can take charge of, not the one that takes charge of us. One that we can impose our will on him, not his will upon us. There's a scene from The Office. And um, the Scranton branch is, has formed a committee because they're looking for a new boss. Picture it in your scene, or in your mind, the scene in your mind. And so Ryan, the one-time temp, and then like excelled, and now he's back in Scranton. He says this. I got away with everything under the last boss, and it wasn't good for me. So I want guidance. I want leadership. Lead me when I'm in the mood to be led. Does that sound familiar? Like, Jesus, be Lord over my life. But like once in a while, I kind of want to be Lord too. Like, take charge of my life when I want you to, of course. We, we say things, we sing things like, have all of me. And then we're like, well, I mean, I mean not like all of me. <laughs> not like everything. Let's not be extreme here. This is the essence of sin. 
all the way back to the garden. The essence of sin is my will be done. The essence of sin, my will be done. The essence of trust, which is accounted to us as righteousness, is your will be done. My will be done, your will be done. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Jesus is agonizing in prayer and he says, Father, if there's any other way for this cup to pass before me, let it be. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Jesus said, not my will, but your will, so that we could say, Lord, not my will, but your will. We stand in the obedience of Christ. And Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can truly say, Lord, not my will, but your will, as you work your will through me. Now, the truth is, you don't want a king that you can control. Think about this. Let's be logical for a moment. You don't want a king that you're in control of because then it limits you to your own capacity. A king that you can take charge of can't save you, can't deliver you, can't heal you, can't transform you. This sort of king cannot give your life meaning. This sort of king cannot fill the emptiness in your soul. This sort of king can do nothing for you. All they can do for you is what you can do for you. And I believe that you're here because you realize that there's a dead-end road with that route. Listen to how the New Testament describes Jesus. Same Jesus we're talking about here. In Colossians, it says this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Come back for Easter, we'll talk about that. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's the kind of king you want. That's the kind of king you need. One who is preeminent in all things, first in all things, greatest in all things. Hudson Taylor put it this way, Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord, of all, or not Lord at all. Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. We need to settle that today. No partial kings in a partial kingdom with partial salvation and partial transformation and partial eternity. All or Nothing. Now, if we fast forward to verse uh, 32, we read this, verse 31, actually. And his mother and his brothers came standing, now note this word, outside. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, that's interesting because Mark gives us a picture here. Those who are inside, those who are outside. Mark is not afraid to employ a little bit of insider-outsider language here. Clearly, there are those inside and outside. Those who are inside the house, which ironically are those who don't belong. Like, this is a ragtag group of people. But they are inside, and it's a group gathered around Jesus, ready to receive according to his grace. And then there are those outside the house. And those who are outside the house are the ones that you would assume belong inside the house. And they are those trying to tell Jesus what to do. In fact, Mark says that they are seeking Jesus. The word can actually be translated demanding Jesus. 
So what can we gather from this? The more that you try to take control of Jesus, the less of him you will get. There are those inside, those outside. And what we see here in Mark is that you will forever fail to experience intimacy with a Jesus that you put demands on. When we attempt to control Jesus, we cannot experience communion with Jesus. If my will be done is the essence of sin and sin separates us from God, us trying to impose our own will and demands on Jesus will naturally put separation between us and Jesus, putting us on the outside. This is one of the fastest ways to ostracize ourselves in the faith. My will. My will. And what it does is it actually pushes ourselves out. There is no one keeping them out, okay? There are times when the church fails and they push people out. Note this, they are on the outside because of themselves. So before we are quick to say we've been pushed out, let's consider this. Let's look at the second group, Well, shall we? The second group is found in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, this is the religious group. And these are those who we would naturally assume were insiders as well. This is like the religious elite. Now, because Jesus doesn't fit their categories, and because they just could not figure out a reasonable explanation for Jesus' ability to perform these miracles and to cast out these demons, what they do is they reach for the, the, the conclusion that really best fits their agenda. They claim that he is not just deranged, but he, he is demonic. This is not just defamation of character. This is demonization. I mean, think about these words. He is possessed. He is absolutely possessed. Now, this is both a political and a religious tactic that we even see today. We don't have to look far to see it in the news, on social media, even in our spheres of influence and our conversations. And the tactic is this. If an opponent can't be squeezed into our agenda or they can't be silenced, or we just can't figure them out, and they just won't go away, the tactic is to demonize or dehumanize them as either evil or subhuman. Because we know that the more we convince ourselves and others that this person or this group that we are dealing with is evil and not human, well, then the easier time we're going to have in eliminating them. Sound familiar? So the scribes go right for the jugular. They say that Jesus is both possessed by Beelzebul or Beelzebub, which in the tradition of the time was a demon prince, and that it's by the power of hell that Jesus delivers people. I mean, that's a huge statement. It is by the power of hell that Jesus is doing these things. So I love this. Rather than ignoring this sort of unproductive rhetoric, Jesus actually takes their accusation. This is brilliant. He takes their accusation, he one undermines it, which we're going to get to in just a moment, and then he uses their accusation, flips it around to describe what Jesus actually came to do. Okay, look at me in verses 23 through 25. 
And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Good question. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. So here's the question. Why would the devil support the destruction of his own realm? Why would, why would he do that? So that's the real obvious assessment here. If, if civil war breaks out, the end of that, that, that means the end of the kingdom. The house won't stand. The house can't stand. Logical. But Jesus also leverages this accusation to affirm that they're partially right. What they're saying is actually partially right. And here's what they're right about. That the presence of Jesus does mean the end of evil's reign. Verses 26 through 27, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first he binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Remember, this is a parable. And so Jesus is describing that Satan is the strong man who has enslaved men and women through sin and disease and oppression and possession and ultimately death. So he's the strong man that's enslaved men and women. But, here's the good news, there now comes one who is stronger. Strong man, someone stronger. One who is going to bind Satan and his evil forces. I love this. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not the devil's pawn. I'm the devil's worst nightmare. I did not come working for the devil. I came to jack his stuff. (laughs) For real. I came to take back what is not his, to plunder his house, to lay a hold of God's good creation that has been under bondage and to set it free. The Bible tells us that we all, and I mean all of us, Regardless of our heritage, regardless of our upbringing, regardless of our family, regardless of our religious upbringing, we are born into the bondage of sin and evil. That through the fall, which we read about in Genesis 3 and the curse that ensued, humanity has found itself in in the grip of an evil that is just too great for us to break free from. In fact, human history is just one long illustration of our inability to rise above evil. And that the only hope for humanity, the only hope for us being set free, was that God would send a liberator. That God would send liberation. And as God sent Moses to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt, God again would send a liberator. This time, the greater Moses, who would deliver the nations out of the slavery of evil. But this wouldn't be through military conquest. This wouldn't be through a display of like brute force. It would come through sacrifice. The strength and liberating power of God would be revealed through what appeared to be weakness. Jesus would bring victory at the cross through seeming defeat. See, Jesus turns the wicked accusation into an opportunity to reveal his mission. What what Jesus came to accomplish on behalf 
of humanity. In the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Lord describes the, the future work of his servant who would bring salvations to, salvation to the nations. And this is what we read of in Isaiah 49. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the strong man? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. Christ has come to set us free. I'm going to make someone's day today. Office reference, now Harry Potter reference. Just warning you. <laughs> Toward the end of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, think early, right? Little Harry. Not so scary movies, Harry. Um, there's a scene where Voldemort begins his process of remanifesting. And Harry discovers that he's using the body of one of his professors. And so after Harry uh, tries to escape, Voldemort actually screams out to his host, the professor, and he says, seize him. So Quirrell puts his hands on him. And as he puts his hands on him, Harry's scar begins to hurt. But all of a sudden, the, the professor lets go and he turns around and he's hunched over and Voldemort's yelling at him and he's screaming at him, seize him, seize him. But the man says, I can't hold him, my hands, my hands. And so Harry looks and he sees the man's hands are, are beginning to turn red and they're boiling and they're burning. And so the struggle continues and as the struggle continues, he begins to see the man withering away into darkness. And so after, shortly after, he has a conversation with Dumbledore. And Harry asks, like, what just happened? Why, why, why couldn't the professor touch me? Why couldn't Voldemort lay hold of me? Why couldn't evil grip me? And Dumbledore responds, he says this, your mother died to save you. If there's one thing that Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. To have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. Deep, sacrificial love sets us free from the grip of evil. And that's what we read of here in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Let's look lastly at group three. Now, the third group that we see in this portion of Scripture are those who are gathered around Jesus, and according to Jesus are those who are intent on living according to the will of God. And what we see here is a contrast, a clear contrast. The family of God trying to impose their will upon Jesus, but then there's this group defined by submitting themselves to the Lord's will. Those inside submitting their will to Christ, those outside trying to impose their will upon Jesus. And Jesus does something astounding here. And we really need to pay attention to this. What he does is that he gives the idea of family an entirely new meaning. What Jesus is essentially doing is reinterpreting what family even is and what family means. Look at me in verses 33 through 35. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, can you just 
for me one moment. Just look around. Look around. Just to give a little bit of context to what Jesus is saying right now. Okay. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So here's the rhetorical question that Jesus is asking. Who is my true family? What makes a true family? In other words, what makes someone an insider in my kingdom? Is it simply flesh and blood? Is it that you were born into the right family? Is it just the privilege of being born into a, a loving family? Or in the case of the scribes, is it a matter of religious filiation? You have some sort of religious title, and therefore that brings you in. What Jesus is doing is describing a new community, a faith family that is based on trusting Jesus and is strengthened by a shared commitment to the will of God. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ redefines for us what it means to be an insider and what it means to be an outsider. I think all of us came with some assumption as to what it means to be an insider here and what it means to be an outsider. And the gospel redefines it completely. The good news is that becoming a member of this family, the family of Jesus, is open, listen, to all people. Regardless of race, regardless of class, regardless of gender, regardless of any other factor, being a part of this family is based on faith, on trust. But there's also a question that we must ask as well, because Jesus' rhetorical question is a question that we need to face as well. Who is our family? What makes family family? Do we, the church, those who have been graciously adopted into the household of God, do we view the family the same way that Jesus views family? Do we define family the way that he does? Have we allowed this radical redefinition of family to shape the way that we view our biological family? Do we allow it to, to shape the way that we view our church community? See, for so long, the church has loathed the cultural pressures that are against it. And for probably the last 30 or 40 years, the, 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 the conversation has been particularly about how the culture is attempting to redefine the family. And here, here's sort of the rhetoric, that it's the culture versus the traditional family. You ever heard that before? Okay. It's a thing. Look it up. <laughs> Culture versus the traditional family. But what if that wasn't even the right paradigm to begin with? I don't think, and this is just my own opinion here for just a minute, and I'll clarify that. I don't think that it's the 21st century church that's been holding the distinctly biblical view, and it's the world that holds the worldly wicked view. What if we have all been missing it? <laughs> What if we've been missing it too? No, don't hear me wrong. The Bible lays out some clear uh, patterns for marriage and children and the biological family. I'm not, I'm not trying to undermine that right now. But what if the church's view of family hasn't been biblical enough? 
The biblical vision of family is much bigger, I believe, than what we've allowed it to be. Is Jesus saying that your spouse, your children, your biological family, they're no longer important? No. But what Jesus is saying is that this is not all that constitutes his family. This is not just what we define as family. See, we say things like, like blood is thicker than water. But consider that. It's true. But for those of us who have believed upon Jesus Christ, we are now, according to the scriptures, bound together by the very blood of Jesus Christ and adopted into his eternal family, which means that we now have something stronger than any familial connection. Consider that. Typically, what it's been is God and family, and then we give our leftovers to our church community, right? In that order. And then we spiritualize that. We spiritualize that pattern. Jesus seems to be breaking that open. He seems to be breaking that open. And because he seems to be breaking that open, I have to believe this morning that the words of Jesus here are both confronting and comforting. It confronts the way that we elevate the biological family over the family of God. You're feeling confronted right now. You're feeling tense probably. Perhaps because we all, and myself included, have elevated the biological family over the family of God. It confronts the way that we have been unbalanced in the way that we spend our time. We are unbalanced in the way that we spend our money and it's un- unbalanced in the way that we make decisions. And if we're going to be honest, it confronts the idol of family. The idol of spouse. And I'm going to go here. The idol of children that has just been allowed and spiritualized to perpetuate in the church for too long. Your wife, your your husband, they won't save you. Your kids, they won't save you. They're a lousy savior. Lousy savior. But we've, can we be honest for a second? We have spiritualized family idolatry. And we pick and choose little verses in order for us to feel good about how we've idolized the biological family. Meanwhile, Jesus says, who is my family? This is my family. These are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters. This is home. If you're feeling confronted, you're not alone. I feel confronted as well. But it's also comforting. I think it's comforting most for those who actually long for a family. Perhaps those who have experienced rejection and hurt and abandonment by their biological families. Or perhaps those who have experienced the bitter sting And really the hurtful words of rejection from a religious community. I shared the story at our our vision night earlier this year. Emily Dickinson was a famous American poet. And in her early years, her family rejected her. They shipped her off to an all-female seminary, a Christian school. And at the school, its founder had created these three categories to place these young ladies within And they would regularly be divided up publicly and assigned to these three groups. And the three groups were these. First group were Christians. Those who they deemed to be bona fide, committed followers of Jesus Christ. The second group were the hopers, they said. These were people that they deemed had a hope. They had hope of becoming a Christian. And then the third group was the no-hopers which simply meant they had no hope of ever becoming a believer. And Emily Dickinson would continually, regularly, and be publicly 
put into that third category. Now, we're never going to know what kind of impact this had on her, but it makes you wonder what this meant for a woman who spent most of her life in isolation as a reclusive writer. Most of her most famous works were discovered after she died. Some relative came through her desk, found it in a drawer, and they were published. Living as a recluse, isolated from society. See, for those of us who already assume that we're insiders, and I think for a lot of us, we just come with that assumption. Yeah, sure, I'm an insider. For those of us who assume we're insiders, if I can be honest, this may do little, very little for you today. This may not be very compelling at all. But for those who at times have felt that they themselves are outsiders, well, then for you, this is a pretty breathtaking prospect, right? That there's a family that welcomes us, that you are welcome to belong, that you actually have a place at the table, that Jesus welcomes you, that his church welcomes you. Listen to these words of C.H. Spurgeon. Christ's glory was that he laid aside his glory, and the glory of the church is when she lays aside her respectability and her dignity and counts it to be her glory to gather together the outcast and her highest honor, the greatest privilege of the church to seek the priceless jewels for which Jesus shed his blood. What a privilege God has given us his church to seek those who have been deemed outcasts and outsiders and tell them the good news that they are the precious jewels for which Jesus Christ shed his blood. There's no greater news in the entire universe. Let me conclude with this. There's a, there's a portion of this uh, passage that we, we, we have to face. It didn't really like fit into the themes of the sermon, but I gotta be a faithful minister and, and tell you about it. Okay, so I remember hearing about the unpardonable sin as a child. Anyone else remember hearing about that? Oh my gosh, it terrified me. This idea of the unpardonable sin, which I didn't know what it was. I didn't have a context for what it was. All I knew was that there was a sin that would ruin me for eternity. <laughs> like, it's not clear what it is, but avoid it. Sort of like walking your Christian journey with like a landmine. And any day you're going to step on it and die. So what is the sin that ruins us for eternity? Well, Jesus says in verses 28 through 30, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. That's good news. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. There it is. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus describes blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And in this context, it means to attribute to the work of the Spirit that which is evil. In other words, to say what the Spirit is doing is evil. And additionally, Jesus says that all of our sins are forgiven. That's the good news. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are all forgiven. They're trusting in Jesus Christ. And so what it means is it's not necessarily the unpardonable sin is not necessarily like a bad thing that you're going to do, and Jesus is going to be like, ooh, that was the one. We're done. Story over. So what is the eternal sin? And I believe it's this. It's to see the love 
and the sacrifice and the welcome of Jesus, the way that he offers healing, the way that he offers healing for our soul, the way he offers hope for our future, the way he, wel- he offers welcome into his family and to reject it, to reject his call home. What is the move that we should fear most in this life? And really, what is the move that we should fear most in this moment? And it's to reject Jesus. What you should fear most is rejecting Jesus and rejecting the work of the Spirit. So I end where I began. In the words of Lewis, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let's together fall at the feet of Jesus and call him Lord and God. Amen?